This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condes Presley. Real treat for you today. It has been a minute since we've had a chance to talk to a couple of authors, great writers with remarkable work that you may want to pick up and read. In the studio with us, we have a Pulitzer Prize winner, Michael Cotman. He has written a book called Shackles from the Deep. It is a tale of, and I really want him to tell you this, but it's the tale of the unique and mostly unknown true story of the discovery and exploration of the Henrietta Marie. And we'll let him tell you what that is because it's quite fascinating. Also in our studio is Ann Bossom. As we met earlier, she said, Dad told me my name rhymed with awesome. So she's Ann Bossom. And you as the listeners get to be the judge of that. I'm sure it's absolutely, absolutely true. She too is an award-winning author. Uh, She has written a book. It is called A Timely Tale of What Has Been Billed as the Last March of the Civil Rights Era, and her book is The March Against Fear. Both are available now. We'll be able to tell you about that, but that having been said, we're going to say hello to Ann Bossom and Michael Cotman, and welcome. Glad to have you on the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's our, my pleasure to be here. So, okay, here's the thing. First off, so why are you two touring together? I, I, this, I it's, it's great to have two authors. Usually, I take them one at a, take you guys one at a time. But it was a great opportunity to bring you both, such distinguished writers in. So, what brings you to Atlanta? We cover the span of history, so why not put both of us together? That way, we'll take you uh, through the nation's history from from uh, bottom to top. I guess. <laughs> And it makes perfect sense. Um, Anne writes about the um, civil rights movement, and part of my book deals a little bit with civil rights too, but also covers the African American slave trade, the African slave trade. So it it dovetails, works out perfectly. And Anne, uh, as you just said, writes about history for young people. Eight titles with National Geographic Children's books, and again, we're talking about uh, the March Against Fear. So, Anne, what is this this story about that you've you've researched, you've chronicled, and now you're telling us? So the March Against Fear is the name that was given to uh, events that unfolded in 1966 in the state of Mississippi after James Meredith began an attempt to to walk the state. He had gained national fame four years earlier by integrating Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, and in 1966 announced that as a black man he was tired of being afraid of white people and he was going to march through his home state to show that he wasn't afraid. And on the second day of his endeavor, he was shot and um, wounded enough so that he was not able to continue. So as was the tradition and the custom and the need of the day, uh, the civil rights community rallied to complete that walk. And uh, his walk became the March Against Fear, and that's the subject of my book. It was a 22-day endeavor through Mississippi. Michael Gottman, your book. It's a um, condes. It's a part detective story, a part um, underwater mystery, a part spiritual journey, and um, and part self-reflection. And it's a story of a slave ship that sank off the coast of Key West in 1972. Uh, it's the only slave ship that's been scientifically documented, and where 20,000 artifacts were recovered, including the largest collection of slave ship shackles ever found on one site, uh, which also includes tiny shackles that were for children aboard the slave ship. And we know that there were 40 children aboard the Henrietta Marie. Um, during one of its um, uh, slaving voyages. Uh, so it's, uh, it's about my um, transatlantic um, uh, retracing of the route of the ship, piecing together this puzzle 
and um, traveling to to London, to Barbados, to um, to um, uh, Jamaica, and to West Africa, retracing the route of the ship, and I scuba dived every port of call. How did you become aware of the Henrietta Marie? I uh, we we got a call when I say we, the National Association of Black Scuba Divers, got a call um, a number of years ago from a group of marine archaeologists with the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Society who actually discovered the, the wreck. And I should say parenthetically that the wreck of the Henrietta Marie was discovered by a treasure hunter by the name of Mo Molinar, who was the only um, man of color, he's black, in the water at the time looking for a treasure ship called the Atocha. And um, while they were looking for this ship, he stumbled across, or as he said, led to these shackles underwater. And uh, he put the shackles on a boat. I can talk about that a little later. And they sat in a warehouse for 10 years. But um, when they began to um, go out and research this particular ship, um, these marine archaeologists called our group, the black scuba divers, and said, we found a slave ship. This is part of your history, and it's a part of our history. Uh, why don't you come down to Key West, dive this wreck with us, and let's see if we can explore and examine this ship together. So it was, it was an amazing call. They didn't, have to, they didn't have to call us. So there's right. a National Association of Black Scuba Divers? Yep, and there's more than three of us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we celebrated our 20th anniversary uh, last year. I've been a member since its inception. There are about 3,000 of us across the country. We've got 50 clubs uh, um, in the United States and, and uh, the Caribbean and Africa. And uh, we've been diving around the world together for about 20 years. But, uh, but this particular um, this ship has really um, uh, bound us even closer. Take us back to the day when you went on the dive and you went down into the wreckage. It was my, uh, my first experience was a very emotional one because um, I had never, you know, dived on a slave ship wreck before. That was the first time. Um, I was able to run my hands through the sand underwater and then uncover the trade beads that were, um, that were on the site. And these trade beads were used by Europeans to trade for African people uh, in 1700. Um, glass beads that were made in Venice, Italy. You had, a, what, you had a question? No, 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 I'm listening. I'm fascinated. And um, uh, so these trade beads were used, and um, African kings and uh, spiritual leaders used these beads to symbolize um, uh, power and social status. And so I was able to run my hands through the sand as I sit and uncover some of these beads. Uh, we placed a one-ton memorial on, on the site um, that uh, commemorates the loss of life of the slave ship, the Henrietta Marie, and commemorates the African um, slave trade. And we put this monument um, on the on the wreck site, and with the bronze inscription um, that, in part, reads um, "Speak her name and um, gently touch the souls of our ancestors." Uh, we put all our names into a um, uh, into a metal box that's embedded in this concrete monument uh, to span time. And we've taken young people on this dive. So, we, as a matter of fact, a number of years ago, we took the the youngest diver ever to dive this site of the Henrietta Marie. He's 11 years old. And, uh, and we teach young kids to swim, snorkel, and then scuba dive, and then take them to the wreck of the slave ship. How, how far down was the wreckage? Thir 30 feet of water. So it's a, it's, it's a perfect opportunity to do underwater exploration and to do scientific examination because you can stay on that site for a very long time uh, underwater. How did those marine archaeologists know when they discovered the wreckage? How do we know that it, w I mean, how did they figure out, I guess with the shackles, that was kind of an obvious one, but that it was... Um, a, a slave ship, and B, the slave ship, the Henrietta Marie. Yeah, you ask a good question. The, um, the first part of that question is that when Mo Moliner um, found those shackles, he was the only one in the water at the time uh, among 10 or 12 other divers who knew what those shackles were and what they represented. A lot of the other divers looking for the, the treasure ship swam over those shackles time and time and time again. So he found them, saw them, and, and, and it was very moving for him, and he knew 
that these um, shackles were used to, to bind slaves. And the, uh, the irony and the power of that moment is, is that 300 years later, Mo Molinar was the, the, f the first person to touch those shackles. 300 years later was a black man. Um, and they were used to bind black wrists much like his. Um, the reason why we knew this was the ship was because they found the ship's bell. And on the front of the bell, it said Henrietta Marie. On the back, it said 1699. So the bell was, in fact, like a black box on an aircraft, right, that gives you a blueprint to begin the research. Were there things recovered from the wreckage? And if yes, where yeah. are those artifacts now? Yeah, yeah, the artifacts are in uh, Key West, Florida, in the museum called the uh, Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Society. And they recovered um, 20,000 artifacts, uh, more artifacts than any other slave ship um, in, in North America. Um, which included, now I have to say, you know, 10,000 of those were probably the trade beads, and they did hire somebody to count every bead. Glad I didn't have to do that. But uh, they found uh, elephant's tusks, which are used for um, uh, combs and piano keys, uh, three cannonballs, uh, two cannons. Um, the Henrietta Marie was very heavily armed to protect itself from pirates during that time, so they had uh, cannons and cannonballs. Um, uh, they also found, in addition to the shackles, they found pewterware, uh, keys to cabins, um, a lot of pewter tankards, uh, plates, um, so a number of very, you know, just fascinating artifacts that were discovered from that, from that site. Um, we also uncovered the hull of the ship um, a number of years ago um, to examine uh, the ship's hull, and it's a big, strong block of wood, and you can bang your hand on this wood 300 years later and probably break your hand, your fist, before you would break this wood. Even? Even now. So, now, so the sand and sediment later, preserved it. In 30 feet of water. 30 feet of water. And then we, we covered it up to still, uh, you know, preserve it. What impact did this dive, this discovery, and writing this book, what impact has that had on you? Um, quite a profound impact. Um, it, um, part of that self-reflection was um, also coming together with the um, African-American divers and the white archaeologists, marine archaeologists, and how we were able to forge friendships and partnerships dealing with this issue, of prickly issue of race. And um, we, we learned that even though we had our differences of opinions on life and maybe politics and, and some race, that um, we learned that we can come together for one common purpose. And our common purpose at that time was to explore that, that slave ship. Um, several of the marine archaeologists uh, who were whiter from the south and we were from the north, so we, you know, we kind of joked about the differences in the way we were raised. Some grew up in rural areas, some grew up in major cities. Uh, but we all came together for that common denominator. But w the, the takeaway for me in this is that, you know, this is a book uh, for young people at this time um, to be able to understand the, um, the differences of race, uh, different ethnic groups, uh, to embrace cultural understanding at a time when race and politics are at the forefront of the American consciousness right now. So I believe this book is timely and it's important for, for kids to read and to understand, to embrace this cultural diversity at a time where we need um, more discussion about diversity and multiculturalism. We know where the Henrietta Marie ended its its final voyage. Where did you find that it began? Because as you said a few moments ago, you oh, traveled yeah. and found all of the places where I, I imagine it originated. You're right. It uh, started in, um, it sailed out of London in uh, 1698, and that was the first uh, voyage to Barbados. So we, um, I spent a lot of time in um, uh, the library, um, a library in London archival, and uh, began to kind of look through shipping records and slave ships captain's logs. And it took me uh, longer than I thought, which should have taken me probably a week or uh, 10 days, took me a little longer because I'm reading these um, 
very um, descriptive. One thing I should say is that slave ship captains were in this despicable business, but they were prolific writers. So they would, uh, at the end of the evening, they'd go down to their cabin, drink ale, and then write in these journals. And that's what, uh, that's what I, I was reading. And they, they, they talked about the um, um, yeah, pickaninnies and, uh, and um, uh, beasts and creatures. Uh, not once did I ever read you know, the word human being you know, or people. And they talked about um, uh, quelling slave revolts by cutting off the legs of African-American men and then throwing bodies over the side and how sharks would chase these ships for miles, knowing at some point bodies were going to be thrown over the side. So I, 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 would, I would read these journals, and I would have to take these breaks. You know, I'd read maybe for an hour, hour and a half or whatever, and then I'd have to go outside, give some fresh air, sort of compose myself, and then go back in and then, you know, read these, read these journals. But what it, did, what it did for me was but it gave us and gave me um, a sense of what life was like during that time, uh, w- the life aboard this particular slave ship, other slave ship captains writing about this particular ship and other ship traveling in clusters because they were protecting themselves from pirate ships who would pick off um, slave ships individu- individually and then run them uh, themselves. Um, it also I- indicated to me that I didn't know that, again, there were children aboard the ship. You know, And uh, as I was writing the book, my daughter then was um, maybe around 9 or 10. Right. And so this is the same age or right group that some of these children would, would have been then on this uh, slave ship. So. Um, so it has a, had a positive, um, I mean, not a positive, but a, a profound impact on my life. And also reaffirmed the fact that I want to continue to write uplifting stories, you know, about this. And this is not a, um, this is a story that's uplifting, too, because it's also a story about survival and that we survived this. And we're here today to talk about it because we survived it. Yeah, I was about to ask you to so just sort of talk a, a little bit more a down about down that. Story. Because you say uplifting it's and thinking about the sinking of a slave ship and yeah. children who died and beads that were used to trade and to sell people who in the journals that you read were not even described as human beings. How do you turn that into a story where the reader can take something away from it? Yeah, because we survived that. So 300 years later, um, um, African people brought to this country um, um, genius, you know, mathematics and and, and science and music and and culture. And these are are things today that, that we embrace. And so we, we, we celebrate this um, African genius. Uh, we celebrate the, uh, the, the people who made tremendous sacrifices through the door of no return in Africa where generations of African-American families were separated. But, w- but we did, what happened was they came to this new world, and we are part of that legacy, and we are part of that rich history. And we have survived, and we have excelled. So, it's, so in, in that regard, um, in my estimation, this is, also, this is an uplifting tale. And your story an uplifting tale? No. Yes. <laughs> you want young people to read it. That I do know. And we're talking again about your book, The March Against Fear. You're writing about James Meredith and his, <laughs> I thought it was interesting and actually somewhat ironic moments ago when you said that he wanted to show that he was not afraid of white people when in today's current events and political discourse you might find that there are some who may be afraid of black people. Well, and in the course of the book, I um, I help readers understand that, in truth, there was quite a bit of fear of black people at that time, too. And uh, this is not a new invention, that this, um, this fear that feeds itself in this loop of oppression uh, grows in many ways out of the fears that white people had that they would be surpassed by black people or um, there would be revenge taken on them or whatever. Uh, and so the... the um, 
you know, the, you ask if the book is uplifting. It, it was one of the harder books I've written, and I've written about a number of social justice stories over the years uh, because unlike some moments from, from social justice history, say the Freedom Rides, which I've written about, where at the end of the Freedom Rides, I mean, it's, it's atrocious, the attacks that are, are made on the, the riders, the bus getting burned in Alabama, et cetera. But in the end, the, the laws are changed and, and the colored seating signs are gone from, from the rear of the buses. The March Against Fear is successful in that it reaches the, um, the destination of Jackson, but it doesn't make the fear go away. And in many ways, um, it, it, it frightens people even more so that the, the work that needs to get done is pushed aside uh, you know, for future generations and is yet undone. So how do I make it uplifting? Uh, it's to, to explain how we got to this difficult situation we live in right now, uh, to give some context to that so that it doesn't seem um, irrational. It, it may be um, immoral, but it's explainable and if you understand it, then maybe it's fixable. And, and you know, our youth is always our greatest hope. And so uh, anything I can do to help to empower young people to try to, to pick this, this journey up and move it forward is, um, is an uplift uh, that I can leave the reader with. And it, and it helps to keep me going as a writer. What draws you, Anne, to the subject matter? So I... Uh, um, uh, I was raised in the South. I live in Wisconsin now, but I uh, was born in Tennessee and raised in Virginia. I went to segregated schools uh, as, a, as a little white girl for um, the through third grade. And um, w when my classrooms were integrated in fourth grade, and I write about this in the, the back matter of the book, um, I, um, my parents did not um, take the advice of their white peers, which was to request that I be put in a classroom with a white teacher. And so I was one of the few white students in a classroom with African-American students and uh, an African-American teacher. Fourth grade was great. I, you know, I really didn't, didn't focus on the race of the people around me. I focused on this awesome teacher, Christine Warren, who I dedicated a book to many years later and, um, and who helped me fall in love with history. And the irony is that the history that she was teaching me was one that had been written um, with a bias built into it. And I, I marvel thinking back on how much courage it took for her to teach this history that, that um, suggested the, the nobleness of the Civil War and, um, and the kindness of masters to slaves and as if this were all okay. Uh, and I think that um, learning as I became an adult and learned more about history that I had basically um, been fooled as a student made me um, all the more determined to get to the bottom of stories and to share them accurately with the next generations. Research shows us that children develop their attitudes on race primarily in the home from the parents and you've just clearly stated that that was a lesson that you learned in your home when you were growing up that was not typical of what other young children at that time in our history would have learned. Where did your parents find that enlightenment? You know, they, I've talked about this at some length with, with them. They're both still alive. My, my mom's 89. My dad's 92. Oh, and, right. And um, both of them share stories about 
experiences that they had with their parents, where their parents were likewise um, respectful of farm workers in the, my dad's case, who, who helped uh, my um, helped my grandfather with a farm, or um, or individuals that my mother or her mother would have interacted with. My grandmother, who was um, lived her whole life in Louisiana, was a member of the school board and lost her seat on the school board because she was favoring integration. Uh, so I think it, it goes deep, and um, I'm grateful that I have examples that help to give me the, the strength to, to um, look honestly, more honestly at the world as much as I, I can try to do from my perspective. I love that your book is titled The March Against Fear. I love that it chronicles the story of James Meredith and that 300-mile uh, walk that he wanted to take and, and the history and comes that the history that came out of that situation that we've studied and that we've read about. I also am struck by the fact that you've written a book that is available today, The March Against Fear, about a man who wanted to show that he was not afraid of white people uh, on a weekend when our new president has half of our nation, uh, many African Americans who 40 years later might say, yes, they are afraid of some white people and and perhaps are not confident in making that march right now. Uh, talk to us about the relevance of, of this story in today's context. Oh, it's incredibly relevant. And even as I was writing about it, I, I, I wrote this book in 2015. Um, I was revising it in 2016. And uh, it, the Black Lives Matter movement came to life as I was working on this book, which if it hadn't been clear to me before, helped to reiterate the extent to which we just stood still for a heck of a long time uh, on when it came to the curve of progress. We made progress in some areas. I've, I've written a book about um, Congressman Lewis as a freedom rider and have heard him speak many times, John Lewis, your, your own congressman, and he, he talks about, you know, walk in my shoes and you will see how much things have changed. And, and in and, and that is true, but there are so many things that haven't changed at all or changed enough. And so this book was a way for me to try to understand it better, too. Why haven't they changed? And I hope it'll help, help readers um, maybe gain some perspective also. And I think a lot of it does come back to this notion of fear and how we create fears and how fears lead to hatred and the way to, to break those fears down isn't with more hatred. Uh, it's to go back to that um, core principle of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and people like Martin Luther King and, and John Lewis and this idea of creating a beloved community with love. And um, that may sound like a, 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 an empty arsenal given the amount of fear we face today, but... I, I would encourage people to draw strength from the power of love and and um, and the way it has brought about change in the past and may again. Michael, pull that microphone back to you one more time. I'll ask you one last question. Uh, what are you wanting readers to take away from from your book? I think um, given the um, politics of the day and the contemporary issues that we're dealing with, I'd, I'd like young kids to to walk away understanding this history of the, the African slave trade, 
but also um, again embracing the um, our um, multicultural society that they have to live in that they have to interact with people who are not like them people who are different from them and I think it's important that they um, that they embrace this um, this issue of um, of racial diversity understand it uh, appreciate um, different cultures and I think that there's a um, I think that this book you know hopefully will um, shine a light on that even though it's about a slave ship it's about um, um, underwater adventure but it also um, it it, um, it 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 highlights our um, the importance of our racial diversity and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you know parents buy it and that, that, that kids understand it outstanding your book Michael Cotman Pulitzer Prize winner shackles from the deep and and bosom totally awesome and thank you so much for being here March Against Fear let our listeners know Michael you first how sure. they can react to you follow you you got a social media account you want to share sure. a website uh, e- you e- e- emails fine and my website is uh, www.michaelhcotman.com and people can also email me at mhcotman at gmail.com and uh, likewise my website my name uh, and and dot bossum a-n-n no e bossum be like boy a-u-s-u-m Dot com and um, my email is that name with a, a dot in the middle and dot bossum at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much. Great time to have both of you in on studio. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.